we see here that Christ-centered prayer or gospel-centered prayer gives attention to the greatest needs in people's lives. You're listening to Colossians, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. that the Bible calls missionary feet beautiful? Those who bring the gospel to places where Christ has not yet been named are described as having beautiful feet in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 verses 13 through 15 say, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Imagine that, beautiful feet. I know for some of us, it's hard to imagine. But the Bible calls their feet beautiful, not because by themselves they're attractive, but because of the beautiful message that those feet are bringing to people who have not yet had access to the gospel. Currently, according to the Joshua Project, there are over 7,410 unreached people groups that represent over 3 billion people, with a B, 3 billion people, who have little to no evangelical influence, meaning they have no Bible or they have an incomplete Bible in their language, or that they have such a small amount of Christians that they can't sufficiently reach that people group effectively with the gospel, or there are no Christ followers in that people group whatsoever. And that's what makes missionary feet beautiful because they're being sent to reach people who've never heard the glorious good news of God's redemptive love. And this morning, we are going to learn how the Colossian church began, how all faith journeys begin with the proclamation of the gospel, with what Paul calls the word of truth. And the word of truth came to them on the beautiful feet of a man named Epaphras. So a little background here before we get started in our text together. Uh, When we look at the book of Colossians, we realize the backstory is that Paul sent this letter to the city of Colossae, and he's actually never met the people there. He's actually never even visited the city of Colossae from what we can piece together in the New Testament. We do know that his ministry in Ephesus was was far-reaching, and most likely Epaphras was someone who had been impacted by Paul's ministry in, in Ephesus. Maybe Epaphras was invited to a Bible study that Paul was teaching and maybe he received Christ in that moment and then built a relationship with Paul and then eventually had a heart to go back to the tri-city area of Heriopolis, Laodicea, and Colossae and that he went there with the gospel and ready to share the gospel and pour into the people's lives. And so the cities of Laodicea, Heriopolis, and Colossae were exposed to this glorious gospel message And people's lives in those cities were transformed. And we know that that's true whenever the gospel is preached. Whenever someone is a hearer of the word of truth, there's always a change. The gospel always bears fruit. Now, it may not be as visible as we want it to be, but it is producing fruit. 
it's either heaping up condemnation for someone or it's awakening faith in them as the Spirit of God makes them new, regenerates the one who hears it. But one thing is certain, Isaiah 55, 11 says that God's word never returns void, that it accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. And so this morning, if you've never heard the gospel, my prayer is that you would hear of God's great love for you and that you would express uh, your repentance by trusting your life in Christ's hands and that you'd be transformed and made new. The gospel, which simply means the good news, is that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone has solved the problem of sin. Jesus alone has made a way of forgiveness, of reconciliation. He alone brings life and freedom through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God against sin, and Jesus died a brutal death. But better than that, he rose again victoriously and triumphantly. And so through repentance and faith in Christ alone, you and I are reborn by the Spirit of God and we're made into new creations. We now have a new heart. We have new desires. We have a new and living hope. And the old life that we had prior to knowing Jesus is really just a shadow to remind us that we're not complete yet. It's neither self-righteous religion nor acts of spirituality. The gospel is centered on the person and work of Christ. And that was the message that Epaphras, the church planter of the church in Colossae, was ultimately bringing to this city. But after the church had been planted and, and after it had kind of been established, some problems came up. False teaching began to infiltrate the church. New and young Christians who had placed their faith in Jesus were being challenged that, oh, you know what, that's not enough. There's something more that you need. And these invading liars were arguing that Jesus was not enough. And they wanted to remove Jesus from his rightful place of preeminence. But when you do that, that's ultimately removing the gospel completely. See, the gospel is good news for a reason. Whenever we make Jesus plus anything, that equals bad news. It's never Jesus plus anything. It's Christ alone. And so Paul wanted to write this church a letter to remedy that bad formula and to restore the position of preeminence that Jesus alone has in our salvation. So this letter that we're reading is what he's heard from Epaphras and he wants to start this letter thanking God for the good things that he's heard. But he also wants to begin this letter with a prayer. And the prayer we're going to read today is a great prayer to pray for Christians. It's such an awesome prayer. If I could pray anything for you, our church family, it's the things that Paul prays for here in Colossians chapter 1. In fact, this week, I began to model my prayer for our church community, for our church family, after Paul's prayer. And I found it to be exciting and wonderful. In fact, later in our time together today, uh, we're going to see three aspects of Christ-centered or gospel-centered prayer. Now, if we're to break this section down in an outline form, I suppose we could do it this way. We're going to see, number one, what we've heard, what Paul has heard. And we're going to see that it's faith, hope, and love in verses 3 through 5. Then secondly, we're going to see what you've heard. So not only what we've heard, but what you've heard. And that is the word of truth, verses 5b through verse 8. Then we finally get to what Paul actually prays. What we pray for you, it's spiritual growth in verses 9 through 11. And then as Paul is sharing this prayer, 
he stops and begins to just wax eloquent and think about how amazing our Heavenly Father is. So the final section is who we thank, and that's our Heavenly Father, verses 12 through 14. So with that as our outline, let's begin with the first idea of what we have heard about you. And we start in verse 3. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul begins and ends this section with thanksgiving. This is kind of a gratitude sandwich. We have thanksgiving on the top and we have thanksgiving on the bottom and we have prayer right here in the middle. And he's going to resume this thanksgiving down in verse 12. But first he explains why he prays for them. And he says, we always thank God for you when we pray for you. We always thank God, he says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't forget, Paul has never met these believers. He's never been to their city. He's never seen their church. But he's still praying for them. When we think about what prayer ultimately is, prayer is simply a conversation with God. It's not only talking, it's also listening as God communicates his will through his word. They recently did a poll with Lifeway and they asked people, what are you praying for? And the results of that poll was very interesting. They found that 82% of people, when they pray, they pray for family or friends. 74% pray for their own personal problems or difficulties, but only 42% pray over their own sin, where they're repenting, where they're having a brokenness over their sin. Well, then the results of the study became a little bit more discouraging. They found that 21% of people pray that they'll win the lottery, 13% prayed for their team to win, and being a Tampa Bay fan, that's very difficult, and then 7% prayed for, can you get this, a parking space or to not get a speeding ticket. These are silly things to pray for. Now, obviously that's cringy because we have the opportunity to converse with the living God. And yet we're so preoccupied with our own agendas that we miss his bigger plan. When we pray, Jesus said, we're to pray, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. And so often we pray for our will to be done and for our kingdom to come. What a huge miss that we so often make prayer. E.M. Bounds said this, he said, God shapes the world by prayer. That man is the most immortal who has done the most and the best praying. They are God's heroes, God's saints, God's servants. Earth is changed, revolutionized, and God's policy is shaped as the prayers are more numerous and more efficient. Paul says, we pray for you always. Later, he says, we haven't stopped praying for you. I wish someone would say that to me. Hey, pastor, just so you know, I'm always praying for you. I haven't stopped praying for you. There's power in prayer. And we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we're to pray without ceasing, which means we have a posture of prayer all morning, all evening, all day. But notice with me the three things that Paul says we thank God for you when we pray for you. First, he says, we thank God for your faith in Christ Jesus. Secondly, he says, we thank God for your love for all the saints. And then thirdly, he says, we thank God for the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. Uh, now, the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that these three remain or these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. One person said, faith looks upward to God and love looks outward to others 
and hope looks forward to the future. And that's a great way of looking at it. Those are three things that Paul said, when we think about you, that's what we thank God for. And Paul says, we heard about these three qualities. We heard you guys have a deep and abiding trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a love for all the saints and your reputation for, for that communal love of others, it's noticed. He, he says, you guys have a hope that's unshaken and it stands out. Now, where did Paul hear that from? He heard it from Epaphras. Man, Epaphras is a talkative guy, wasn't he? I mean, he's sharing his faith with unbelievers. He's sharing the details of the church back with Paul. Now, this week, as I studied this, I was wondering, what would a pastor who has never been to Shoreline say about you, say about our fellowship? What would they say that they've heard about our church? And I actually reached out to a few pastor friends who have never been to our fellowship and asked them, would you send me a little bit of a response on what you've heard about Shoreline? And I want to read it to our church this Sunday morning. So I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to read to you what pastors, what people have said about us, about you, without ever having met you. One person said this, without living in the area, without being plugged into the community here, what I've heard is through what is available online and what other people have said. And here it is. Shoreline is a church of real people with a focus on God's word. Isn't that awesome? Another pastor friend said, I've heard about Shoreline's on-point doctrine, their heart to equip, their love for the lost, and their amazing coffee shop. <laughs> yes, we have great coffee and a passion for coffee here at Shoreline. Another pastor said, dynamic, vibrant, welcoming. Our adopted son was looking at a job in Sarasota recently, and we told him that might be good because we know of a really good church in Bradenton where he could get plugged in and grow. Another friend of mine said, I've heard and noticed that you're a community that is centered around Jesus, which I love. Those are all awesome, but my favorite one was from a pastor friend of mine in Colorado. And here's what he said. He said, when Shoreline Church comes to mind, I'm immediately reminded of the passion and commitment to Jesus that flows in and through the church. Because social media helps us to stay in contact visually, I get to see how that passion and commitment is lived out in regular and powerful ways. The gospel in action immediately pops into my mind. It's one thing to say you believe in the gospel. It's another thing to say you teach the gospel. But oh, the power of the gospel in action. That's shoreline to me. Wow, that's incredible, guys. So Paul had heard of their faith, hope, and love. And so he's communicating that back to them. We thank God when we've heard of these great things about you. But in verse five, he switches gears to remind them that God has already done some amazing things in and through you because of what you had heard. And so let's now look at that second section, what you've heard, the word of truth. Look at verse five with me, the second half. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Now, this doesn't mean literally what Paul is saying is to all the Roman empire. He told the same thing to the church in Rome, that the whole world was hearing the gospel. He doesn't mean literally every corner of the world. What he's saying is the farthest reach of our influence uh, has received the message. 
And so in verse 7, he says, you guys learned it from Epaphras. Well, what did you learn? Notice the phrase with me, the word of truth, the gospel. That's a very, very important phrase. We find that phrase in a few other passages of scripture. We see it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We see it in 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul said, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling, and here it is, the word of truth. We even see it in James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, where James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. There are many words out there, but the word of truth is the gospel proclamation, the greatest and most profound truth that could ever be communicated in words. Listen, church, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. And that news must be communicated with words. And those words need to be true. And so the gospel is the word of truth. And so we communicate it, or more accurately, we relay it to people who need to hear it. Which, by the way, is anyone with a pulse if you're keeping count. We all need to hear the word of truth. Thank God Epaphras was a faithful minister. Paul calls him our beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister. Thank God Epaphras had the boldness to share the gospel with those who needed to hear it. A.W. Pink says, The preacher who most honors Christ is not the one who produces the largest visible results, but he who sticks the closest to his commission and preaches the word most faithfully. Amen. Thankfully, Epaphras had done that. He had taught them the gospel. And Paul could say, we're even hearing that it's bearing fruit in your lives and it's bearing fruit everywhere that it's gone. And see, that's exactly what Paul tells them he's been continually praying for them. So let's look at our third section, the actual prayer that Paul prays for them. Look at verse nine. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Okay, so let's break this down section by section. Five things that Paul prays for. First, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul's prayer life was constant. And the first thing he prays was, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is significant because the Colossian heresy was one that taught that you needed to have secret, deeper knowledge. But Paul simply prays that God would download the knowledge of his will directly to them. I would argue that knowing and discerning God's will is one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. So often we pray, Lord, thy will be changed rather than thy will be done. Paul was praying that they would be filled with an understanding and a knowledge of what God's will was in their lives. And so often we pray, what is God's will for my life? And I think that's the wrong question. The bigger question is, what is God's will? And that was what Paul was praying they would come to understand. 
But secondly, Paul prays that they would walk worthy of the Lord, that they would walk in a way that's fully pleasing to him. And this is possible because we know and understand God's will. We first learn and discern what pleases God. And once we know what pleases him, then we do it. So many people ask the question, is this okay for a Christian to do? Is it okay for me to do this as a Christian? And I think that's not the right question. A better question is, does this thing fully please the Lord? Does this activity, does this action, does this television show, does this book, does this thing that I want to do, is this pleasing the Lord? And Paul prays that they would walk in a manner that's fully pleasing to him. But thirdly, Paul prays that they would bear fruit in every good work. This is what Jesus communicates in John 15. And he says that's only possible when we abide in the true vine. It's only possible to bear fruit by keeping connected to the vine. If we abide in Christ, we will bear fruit. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, let works of obedience, testimony, zeal, charity, piety, and philanthropy all be found in your life. Do not select big things as your special line, but glorify the Lord also in the littles. Be fruitful in every good work. Well, Paul didn't just stop there. Paul also prayed that the Colossians would increase in their knowledge of God himself, not just his will, but in knowing God. And this is what Peter said is a big mark of maturity when he wrote his second epistle. As you mature in your walk with God, there should be an increase of your knowledge of him, both doctrinally and intimately. The growing Christian over time will know more about God and they'll also know God himself more and more intimately. It is a contradiction for a Christian to have said they're growing over time and growing in maturity over time and yet they're not knowing more about the Lord nor are they knowing the Lord more. If you're a Christian for any number of years and you're just living the same Christian year over and over, you're not actually maturing. It's critical for us to be adding knowledge to our faith. If you're not adding knowledge to your faith, you're either lazy or you're sinning. So Paul prays that they would grow in their knowledge of God. But finally, Paul prays that they would be strengthened with all power to endure with patient joy, that they'd have endurance and they'd have the strength of God. But this power isn't found just within the believer by himself. It's according to God's glorious might upon us. We need to be endued with power from the Holy Spirit to be a witness and even to endure hardship. We need to be endued with this power to have joyful patience with other people. And I think one of the best prayers that we can pray for people is what Paul prays here, just for them to be strengthened by God, to have strength by his grace for the trials that they're going through. What a great prayer. Just, Lord, strengthen them by your grace. Paul says that we pray this prayer over and over for you constantly. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but the overall theme of this prayer is just that they would go on to greater fullness, a greater knowledge of God's will, that they would go on to please him in every area, that they would be fruitful in every good work, that they would have all the strength and all the power that they need to live a life of patient joy. He's praying essentially for one thing, for spiritual growth. He's praying that they grow spiritually. And as he's praying, he kind of stops and goes off on another tangent, but that tangent brings it back to the beginning where he just thanks God. 
And so let's look at this fourth section where he kind of says who he's thanking, and it's our Heavenly Father. Look at verse 12 with me. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So notice with me, he's specifically thanking the Father who's the initiator of the redemptive work of Christ on our behalf. When we think about the Godhead, or some call the Trinity, we can sometimes be confused about God's active work in our salvation, or God's active work in creation. And so we can kind of break it down this way. The Father is the one who initiates and administrates the redemptive work before the foundation of the world. Whereas the Son manifests and performs the redemptive work through his incarnation, through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And then the Spirit is the one who testifies of redemption and the one who's active in regeneration and sanctification in the believer's life. But here specifically, even though the God is active in our salvation, Paul specifically gives thanks to the Father. And specifically, he gives three big things that he describes the Father doing. So let's break these down really quick. Number one, he's thankful that the Father has qualified us to share in the saints' inheritance in light. Paul says the Father qualifies us, and it's the Father doing it, not our good works. You know, your good works do not qualify you for salvation. I noticed recently that the government had some qualifications on the stimulus money. You either had to make a certain amount of income, like under a certain amount each year, and you also had to have filed in 2018 or 2019 and have put your bank account information in to get a direct deposit. And if you didn't do that, you didn't qualify to get the stimulus direct deposit. And isn't it wonderful, beloved, to know that there's nothing that you and I can do to be qualified for this inheritance? Listen, that's glorious good news. There's nothing you and I can do to conjure up God who desires then to bless us with this inheritance. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what side of town you live on. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter the, the name of the brand that, are, that it's threaded into the clothing that you're wearing. It doesn't ultimately matter what your net worth is or how spiritual or law-abiding you claim to be. The only way that you are qualified for this inheritance is for the Father to give the approval. And notice that it's not a wage, it's an inheritance. We are, according to Scripture, called co-heirs with Christ. And here Paul says, we're inheritors of the light. And it's not something we work for. It's something freely bestowed upon us because of our family heritage. We're born again into this kingdom, the kingdom of light. And so Paul says, man, we thank the Father who's qualified us. Number two, he thanks the Father who's delivered us from the domain of darkness. Now, another way to translate domain of darkness is power of darkness. Jesus used the same phrase in the Garden of Gethsemane. When, remember when the religious leaders came to arrest him with the temple guard? Jesus said in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, 53, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. One theologian said these words refer to the sinister forces marshaled against him for decisive combat in the spiritual realm. Wow. Before you and I were delivered 
We were by nature children of wrath. We were in darkness. We were spiritually dead and we were spiritually blind. And we kind of stumbled and fumbled around in the darkness, in the pitch black of our own spiritual ignorance. And we were held under the power and the domain of darkness. And Jesus himself says in John 3.19, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world through the person and work of Christ. And yet men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And so we were in the domain of darkness, under the power and the sway of darkness. And yet those who have repented and trusted Christ, Paul says, I can thank God, the Father, who has delivered them, delivered us from the power of darkness. But number three, it gets even better. Paul says, I thank the Father who has transferred us to his son's kingdom, where we have redemption and forgiveness. William Barclay explains that this word transfer, or some translations say convey, that that was a word used in the ancient world when one empire would take over another empire completely. And they would transfer all of the land, all of the people, all of the plunder completely over to the conqueror's land. So, for example, if Persia invaded and conquered your land, you were now, as a citizen, and the land and all of your goods were now transferred over to the Persian Empire. You're now subjects of that empire, as well as everything that you owned. I mean, what a picture that Paul is using. He's saying, you and I have been delivered from the domain of darkness, and you and I have been transferred to the kingdom of light. Everything we are and everything that we have has now been placed under the lordship of King Jesus. No wonder Paul breaks into this spontaneous gratitude as he recounts his prayer for the Colossian church. God, our father, is glorious and he's worthy of our thanksgiving. Now, Paul's prayer is really a great template for us to consider what true gospel-centered or true Christ-centered prayer looks like. So if you're taking note, I want us to jot these three application points down. What we see from this text is that number one, Christ-centered prayer or gospel-centered prayer gives acknowledgement to God as the source of all good things in people's lives. Notice that Paul thanks God at both the beginning and at the end of this section. And he's pointing all of the attention to God as the initiator and to us as the recipients. I mean, Epaphras did some great things, certainly did, but he's not the one getting the glory. The church in Colossae, they had some noteworthy things to applaud, but they weren't the ones that Paul was giving attention to. He says, we thank God for the things that we see in you because it's God who gets the credit for the good things in our lives. And so Christ-centered prayer, gospel-centered prayer gives the right attention, the right acknowledgement to God as the source of all good things. Number two, Christ-centered or gospel-centered prayer gives awareness to gospel transformation in people's lives. Notice how Paul recognizes how the word of truth was bearing fruit in the Colossian believers' lives. Now think about how different our prayer would look like if we would recount how the gospel has made a tangible change in people's lives. So often, when you pray for people, when I pray for people, so often we fail to consider how God has done a work in and through those people's lives. Now, I don't believe Paul is a dreamer here who doesn't see real struggles or real concerns and, and is just looking at them with rose-colored glasses. I think in the whole scheme of life, 
Paul's setting a good example here where we can realize I don't celebrate gospel transformation in people's lives enough. Usually we're quick to argue or to divide over our differences. And I've just noticed a lot lately where people want to draw lines and put people inside our lines with us or outside our lines and not with us. And we kind of make these judgment calls. And even in our prayer, we oh, Lord, please just be with them. I pray that you help them to get it, help them to wake up. And we pray these prayers instead of celebrating the work that God has done through his word in someone's life. How often do we give awareness to how the gospel has and is bearing fruit in people? And how often do we then tell those people we appreciate them? Warren Wiersbe said the famous Scottish preacher, Alexander White, was known as an appreciator. He loved to write postcards to people, thanking them for some kindness or blessing that they had brought to his life. Those messages often brought a touch of encouragement to a heart just when it needed most. Appreciation is great medicine for the soul. Paul takes 11 verses. This is one long run-on sentence in the Greek. And he just gets all caught up in what God has done in their lives. And I want my prayer life to look like Paul's. But thirdly, we see here that Christ-centered prayer or gospel-centered prayer gives attention to the greatest needs in people's lives. You know, Paul doesn't pray about the earthquake that had ravaged the city decades earlier. Paul didn't pray about some of the very specific things that they were going through that week, the short-term problems they were struggling with. No, see, Paul prays for them in a much grander way. He prays for them to know God's will. He prays for them to be pleasing to God, for them to live a life that bears fruit, to know God in an increasing way and to be strengthened with God's power. You see, our greatest need is not merely to get our bills paid or to get our comfort sorted out. Our biggest need is not for the the virus curve to be flattened. The biggest need in our lives right now is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to mature in him. We, of course, as Christians are not to pray to win the lottery or to pray to get a closer parking spot at the mall. I mean, no one's shopping at the mall right now anyway. So we're not asking for those things. But as Christians, we're able to approach a holy and omnipotent God because of Christ. And so our prayers should call upon his resources, his infinite resources, to meet people's greatest needs. I know so often I can just pray for things or I can pray for problems to go away. But how often do I start the day praying, Lord, whatever I face today, I pray that I would be made more like Jesus. I pray that I would mature and grow in my spiritual walk. Help me to be fully pleasing to you, Lord. Help me to know your will and help me to submit to it. See, Christ-centered, gospel-centered prayer understands that the greatest need is not what's right in front of us temporally. It's spiritual. Now, before we close, I have two questions for us. Number one, are we receiving the word of truth? Paul said, you learn the gospel from Epaphras. That means Epaphras did the work of bringing the word, but they had to do the job of listening intently. One person said, the pastor shouldn't be the only one working during the sermon. We should all be actively listening and learning and applying our hearts to what we hear. Dan Dumas said, it's the first duty of every member of every congregation to come eager and ready to hear God's word. I wonder this morning if you've come eager and hungry to hear from God. 
There may be some of you who are watching this and you've never heard this amazing news that you're a rebel, that you stand condemned, that you face the wrath of a holy God for your rebellion and high treason, that you chose your own way and it's called sin and that way leads to death. Now that doesn't sound like very good news and it's not, it's horrible news. And yet in God's great love for you, the father who's rich in mercy sent his son and this is the good news. Jesus came to declare the kingdom of heaven, to demonstrate the nature and character of the Father. Jesus bore your sin in his own body on the cross. And he took the punishment that you deserved, and he took the death and the wrath that you deserved upon himself. But see, the glorious good news is that he didn't stay dead. He rose again triumphantly, and he conquered death and sin. And he offers this same victory over death to you. If you would renounce your sin, turn from it, repent, and you would turn to him and receive him as Savior and Lord. It's incredible good news. Have you received the word of truth? If so, I would ask you as a believer, how has that truth, how is the gospel, how is the word of truth, how is it bearing fruit in your life? As we'll see in the study, it's going to impact everything. It's going to impact our worship. It's going to impact our relationships. It's even going to impact our homes. Every practical area of our life is affected because Jesus is not Lord of some, he's Lord of all. So are you receiving the word of truth? But secondly, as we close, are you sharing the word of truth? Like Epaphras, are we considering the people around us who need to know and receive the gospel? We need to be those who don't live so safe in other words, what if we stepped out and boldly declared the gospel as Paul says we should? Apparently one time a one-legged school teacher came to J. Hudson Taylor to offer himself in service as a missionary to China. And Taylor asked him, well, with only one leg, why do you think of going as a missionary? And the response from George Scott was this. He said, because I do not see those with two legs going. Well, he was accepted by J. Hudson Taylor. See, as we close this morning, we are being commissioned with the word of truth, the gospel to our communities. And there's never been a better time than right now in the history of your life probably to check in with anyone, to check in with everyone and just ask them because of this shared experience, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? And I've got to tell you, many people that I'm speaking to are open and thankful to receive prayer. This is a wonderful cultural moment that we have where we can say to someone, hey, there's a lot going on in the world. It's a little bit scary. What are your spiritual beliefs? And they're thankful that you're asking the question. What an amazing moment that you and I have. What a great season that this is to write an actual letter, to take a pen and paper and actually write a letter to your family or your friends explaining what you believe and sharing the gospel with someone who needs to hear. Why we have hope, who our Messiah is, and why our life has changed. As we close this morning, I want to give us the words that Paul leaves us in Colossians chapter 4. And this will be our closing commission. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. That's my prayer for us as Shoreliners, that we would make the best use of the time that we would declare the gospel boldly as 
we should. That we would pray for an open door for the word so that we could declare the mystery of Christ. And so let's go to the Lord together and ask him to work on our behalf. Father, we thank you for the great things that Paul thanked you for, that we have been qualified, that we have been redeemed, we've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. We thank you for what Christ has done in paying the price for our sin and dying in our place. We thank you, Lord, that we have an inheritance in you. And Lord, we pray that we would be bold to get the gospel message out. We wouldn't shrink back. We wouldn't hold back. We wouldn't substitute evangelism and, and, and be afraid to go out and boldly proclaim the gospel. We wouldn't substitute something else for that. But we would, Lord, be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. Lord, just give us creativity. Give us new opportunities. Maybe it's writing a letter. Maybe it's calling someone, FaceTiming, Zoom calls. I know we're walking more actively now. Maybe it's just talking to our neighbors from afar. But Lord, give us those opportunities. And we pray that we would see gospel fruit in our lives. We pray that our prayer lives during this time would be so much more in-depth, so much uh, more powerful because we're spending that time at your feet. So we thank you, Lord, for the work that you have done, the work you will do. And Lord, we just pray that this would be a time of great effectiveness as we trust you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people together said, amen. Well, Shoreliners, God bless you. I wanna just pray Deuteronomy chapter six over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.